Welcome to The Faithful Forebears, a podcast about faithful Christian men and women throughout history. Episode 2.5, Walata Petros. Welcome back. By now, everyone who ordered their t-shirts should have them. And you should have gotten twice of what you ordered, since Custom Ink made a mistake, but thankfully reprinted them all. So, I hope you enjoy those shirts. Don't forget to refresh yourself with the old episodes, so you can answer whenever someone asks, what does it mean to persevere like Christine, or be bold like Estefanos? I don't want either of us to be embarrassed that you can't answer. Today we continue our journey through the history of Ethiopia. The last several episodes, we've seen Ethiopia struggle through conflicts both inside and out. Zara Yaqub, remember, reigned through a literary and cultural renaissance in the mid-1400s, but his descendants had to fight for their survival against external enemies. In the 1530s, the Ethiopian church and nation was almost wiped out by a Muslim general named Gragan. But thanks to a last-ditch attack, miraculously Gragan was killed and Ethiopia was saved. One of the greater reasons that Ethiopia won that war was with the help of their new allies, the Portuguese Empire. But we mentioned last episode the relationship between Ethiopia and Portugal quickly had its own friction. Both nations were Christian, but there were many differences between Roman Catholicism and Ethiopian Orthodoxy. And, if the two were to get along, it would take a lot of patience and tact. Remember from last episode, during the reign of the Ethiopian emperor Dawit II, the bishop of Ethiopia handed over his title to a Portuguese doctor. This move was not really legal. If you remember from several episodes ago, the Ethiopian bishop traditionally had to be appointed by the Patriarch of Alexandria in Egypt. But with a Portuguese man at least nominally in charge of the Ethiopian church, the Portuguese had been encouraged to send some more reinforcements to defend Ethiopia. After Grogan and his army was defeated, the two nations had to sort out exactly what this arrangement meant. For the Roman Catholic Portuguese, this was a huge opportunity, and it got the attention of another figure famous in church history, Ignatius of Loyola. Ignatius was a founder of a religious order, the Society of Jesus, usually known as the Jesuits. The Jesuit order was founded in 1534, during the exact same time the Ethiopian invasion by Grogan was happening. The Jesuits put a special focus on scholarly pursuits and evangelization. Over the next several centuries, they would often become entangled in political and religious history around the world. We will be seeing more of the Jesuits in future episodes. Ignatius himself read accounts of the Ethiopian church, and he had a passion to unite the Ethiopian church with the Roman Catholic Church under the fold of the papacy. Now, that may not sound too great, and a little proto-colonial of Ignatius, but Ignatius did not plan on simply making the Ethiopian church to be a replica of the European Catholic Church. His plan to bring Ethiopia into the fold was surprisingly culturally sensitive. He wrote up specific instructions on how Jesuits were to interact with Ethiopian Christians, They were not to criticize or forbid customs of the Ethiopian church that seemed foreign to them. They were to preach all their sermons in the local language, which meant usually Amharic, 
and only slowly introduced the new customs or ideas of Europe. And it was a good plan. And if it had actually been followed, who knows what could have happened. The problem was, it was not followed. By the time Jesuit missionaries reached Ethiopia in the year 1555, Emperor Claudius of Ethiopia was firmly entrenched in his defense of the traditional Ethiopian faith. So instead of bringing unity, this Jesuit missionary team decided to make the tension worse. One Jesuit wrote a treatise numbering all the ways the Ethiopian church had got things wrong, both in practice and in belief. And Claudius, for his part, instead of honoring the irregularly placed Portuguese bishop, he simply got a new one through the old regular way. This new bishop, named Mark, was appointed by the Patriarch of Alexandria, following the old tradition. This new bishop, Mark, was solidly with Emperor Claudius, and excommunicated anyone who was simply found carrying Jesuit literature. But more Jesuits came, and they did not help the situation either. They were frustrated that neither the emperor nor the bishop would submit to papal authority. So the Jesuits left the royal court. And while they had little success with the Ethiopians themselves, they ministered to a small Portuguese community now living in Ethiopia. For about 40 years, the Jesuits lived in a begrudging tolerance with the Ethiopian emperors. But that changed when the Jesuits in Ethiopia received a new leader. This new leader was a Spanish Jesuit named Pedro Paez. Pedro set out from Spain in 1588. But remember, to get to Ethiopia in the 1500s, one had to sail all the way around Africa, and then through the Red Sea past hostile Muslim nations. In the end, it took Paez 15 years to get to Ethiopia. But when he did, he showed his skill as a missionary and as an ambassador. Paez actually followed the blueprint that Ignatius had laid out almost 50 years earlier. He was incredibly culturally sensitive. He was also curious and scholarly. Paez had spent time learning the languages of Ethiopia, particularly Amharic, the more everyday common language, and Ge'ez, the traditional language of the court and learning, kind of like the Ethiopian version of Latin. He spent his time learning about Ethiopia in other ways as well. He explored the nation's geography. He is credited with being the first European to see Lake Tana, one of the major sources of the Nile. He also researched the history of Ethiopia writing a book on the subject, called The History of Ethiopia, and this book is still considered invaluable in Ethiopian studies. Paez was as gentle and tactful as his predecessors had been tone-deaf and ham-fisted. When Paez finally got an audience with the current emperor, named Zadangel, the emperor was very impressed. He was impressed that Paez actually knew the languages of the nation. He was so impressed that within one year, Zadangel converted to Roman Catholicism. Paez warned the king not to do anything too quickly, but Zadangel ignored this advice. Unfortunately, this helped spark a civil war in Ethiopia, which had already become a tinderbox of political intrigue. Zadengel was killed in the war just as the fighting began. Paez was savvy enough to see all this coming, so he quietly excused himself before the fighting began. The civil war lasted for two years, until another emperor was able to reunite the country. This was Emperor Sosenyos I, 
who began his rule in 1606. Once everything had quieted down and this new emperor had become established, Pius returned to court to continue his quest of uniting the two churches. But since the conversion of the last emperor, now many in the Ethiopian church were on guard, ready to resist any more push towards European Roman Catholicism. So perhaps I should spend a little time discussing some of the main differences between these two traditions. At this point in time, the Ethiopian Orthodox Church had many customs that the Roman Catholic missionaries then, and modern Western Christians now, would find surprising. And we have the writings of an earlier Portuguese priest recording many of these differing practices. For one, the Ethiopians would circumcise all their children, both boys and girls. Infants after their baptism, which was 40 days after birth for boys and 60 days for girls, were given communion with a very tiny amount of water. They would fast on Wednesdays and Fridays and observe both Saturday and Sunday as Sabbaths. They followed most of the dietary restrictions of the Old Testament, including not eating pork or non-scaly fish. Priests were the only ones allowed inside churches, and they would read the epistles and the gospels at the door of the church to the people and would bring them communion at the door. The priests would marry, and usually the priesthood was passed down to their sons. Theologically, the biggest difference had to do with the two natures of Christ. Now, I don't want to get too much into this because it's somewhat deep theology, and the controversy goes back long before the 15 and 1600s, all the way back to the 400s AD. The question has to do with whether Jesus has two natures, one divine and one human, the position of Protestants, Catholics, and Greek Orthodox, or if he has one nature, fully divine and fully human united, the position of the Coptic Church and the Ethiopian Church. If this doesn't seem like a big difference to you, you're not alone. And actually, recently, churches of both traditions have basically said that the difference is mostly semantics, and that actually bridges can be built between the two. But as we'll see later in this episode, both Catholics and Ethiopians will use that difference as an excuse to call each other heretics for saying either Jesus has one nature or two. Whatever issues Pius may have had with Ethiopian traditions and teachings, he was very tactful in spreading that message, always making sure to respect the local traditions. While he did convince and convert the Emperor Susenyos of the merits of the two natures of Christ, Pius warned the emperor not to try to convert his nation too quickly. Nonetheless, even with that caution, there began to be great tension in the royal court. Things got much worse when the gentle and tactful Pius died in 1622. He was replaced by Alfonso Mendez, who was almost the exact opposite of Pius. While Pius had entered humbly, seeking to learn as well as teach, Mendez came with all the pomp and circumstance that he could muster. When he arrived, he dressed in full pontifical dress and with an escort. And when he first came to the royal court, he gave a 30,000-word speech. Mendez quickly convinced Susenos and some of his court to swore public allegiance and submission to the papacy. With that, Mendez quickly worked to consolidate what he thought was a victory but in the end would undo everything Paez had done. Mendez basically outlawed any practice of traditional Ethiopian orthodoxy, 
including outlawing all of their priests, monks, and nuns, and even declared in an edict that everyone must become Roman Catholic under pain of death. Unsurprisingly, none of this went well for anyone. So that's our long introduction, and we will finally meet our faithful forebear for today. She is a nun named Waleta Petros, which means daughter of Peter. She, along with many others like her, were not about to give up their heritage to embrace the practices of the, and I'm quoting here, filthy Europeans. So while last episode we saw the military battle for Ethiopia, today we will see the cultural battle for Ethiopia. Now, Alata Petros was born in 1592, about 30 years before Alfonso Mendez would come to Ethiopia and basically outlaw Ethiopian orthodoxy. She was born to influential parents in the Ethiopian nobility. Her family lived near Lake Tana, and that place will come up regularly in the story of her life. As I mentioned before, Lake Tana is one of the major sources of the Nile and is one of the major lakes in Ethiopia. And in that lake are several islands, including one known as Rema Island, that holds a great monastery. According to a legend, Walata Petros's father met a monk on that island that prophesied that he would have a daughter who would shine like the sun, and that she would be a guide for the blind of heart, and the kings of the earth and bishops will bow down to her. When she was born, her father had special delight in his new daughter. After hearing of her birth, he raced in to see his daughter, something which was very unheard of for a great lord to do. Usually men would come nowhere near to where births took place because of rituals for cleanliness. But he couldn't help himself, and he picked her up and kissed her right then and there, much to the surprise of the midwives. It's even recorded that when she was a young child, her father would bring out his sword and pretend to march for her, much to her delight. But sadly, he died when she was still a child, and the task of raising and educating her fell to her mothers and her brothers. Thankfully, they were up to the task. They taught her well in scripture and many of the other books and traditions of the Ethiopian church. And when she was old enough, they arranged a marriage for her to a man named Melchia Christos. Since she was from a powerful family in the Ethiopian court, he too was also of very high stature. In fact, he was one of the chief advisors to the king. Now, the relationship between Waleta Petros and Melchia Christos is a very strange one, but it will play a major part in the story. Now, their marriage would begin as a happy one, and Melchia Christos was, by all accounts, very much in love with her. She conceived soon after their wedding. But Waleta Petros prayed this during her pregnancy. If this unborn child that is inside my womb shall be born and please you, may it live. But if not, may it quickly die. She gave birth to a baby boy, had him baptized, but he died soon after. She gave birth to two more, saying the same prayer, but the same thing happened. This was a defining time for Waleta Petros. These events and the grief gave her a different perspective on life. In a way, it made her take her eyes off earthly things and look to spiritual things. We will see she was willing and able to go through extreme physical hardships without hesitation after these events. So both Waleta Petros and Melchia Christos, her husband, were grieved greatly by these tragedies. Melchia Christos still loved his wife very much through the tragedy and was always generous and gentle with her. 
But Waleta Petros no longer wanted to stay with him. According to her biographer, she did not want to stay with him because she now bore in mind the transience of this world. So she began to devote herself more completely to religious practices. She fasted and prayed much more than she had in her early life. And she would go into her church and pray through the night regularly. Being wealthy, she would also find ways to help her local clergy. Every Sunday, she would make a meal for the priests. And apparently, in a funny little story, one of her servants complained about having to do this. So, Aleta Petros made the servant watch the local priests one evening to see everything they did. Once she saw how busy and vigilant they had to be, she repented, and happily made the food from then on. Funny how some things never change, and there are still plenty of people today who have no idea what pastors do during the rest of the week. So Aleta Petros would also throw banquets on holidays and invite both priests and those of high status, and the lowly and the humble. But during those banquets, she would secretly not eat anything herself, already trying to give up all worldly pleasure. But even with all these spiritual practices, she did not feel fulfilled. Instead, she wanted to leave her married life and become a nun. And she was ready to run away from Malkia Christos by whatever means necessary. She had been in contact with a priest on the shores of Lake Tana, hoping to live a monastic life there. One day, when her husband was on a military campaign, she snuck away. She walked many miles, and apparently her feet were so tender from having lived a rich life that they would bleed often. But she happily accepted it and pushed through the pain. She reached the monastery, shaved her head, put on a nun's cap, and hoped to live out the rest of her days as a nun there. But that was not to be. When her husband found out, he was angry. He gathered a group of soldiers to go find her. When they arrived at one of the towns that had housed Waleta Petros on her journey, his men ransacked it. They waited near the monastery Waleta Petros was now at and stopped every boat and traveler going to or from the monastery. When the head priest found out what was going on, he went out to meet Melchia Christos. He berated him for his violent tactics with the town. Melchia Christos repented and even wept, telling the priest he was sorry and to do whatever necessary to get his wife back. He even said he would resign his royal post if need be. When the priest heard this, he went to Aletra Petros and told her, If you leave him, and if he marries another woman, his transgression is your fault. Furthermore, since the people of the town wept because they suffer, God is displeased with you. He does not love your repudiation of the world and will not accept your prayers. So begrudgingly, Lada Petros returned to be with her husband. But, not surprisingly, it was not all sunshine and daisies in the household after that. Lada Petros was still determined to be a nun. And if she couldn't do it in a monastery, she would do it at home. Her sympathetic biographer even acknowledges she was looking for a reason to separate from her husband. The chance came when Emperor Susenios became a Roman Catholic. Melchia Christos was one of those close to Emperor Susenios who also converted to Roman Catholicism with him. This was just the reason Walada Petros was looking for. So she basically went on strike. She stopped eating or drinking or wearing perfume or basically showing affection to her husband in any way. When Malkia Christos saw her determination, 
and how she was not going to be pleased with their marriage ever again, he gave up. He told her, go where you want to go. I won't stop you. So she left and went to be with her family. This episode is a little strange, because while Walata Petros is a hero in the Ethiopian church, they too recognize she was not a very faithful wife. Not unfaithful in terms of adultery, but simply unfaithful in that she was not willing to be his wife anymore. But, as I've said before in this podcast, not one of our heroes has been perfect. And in her desire to become a nun, Walata Petros did cause harm with her husband. Though we will see, her husband never really stopped loving her in return. Walata Petros then lived briefly with her family, but again snuck away from them to go to the same monastery as before. Soon after she arrived, another nun came to the monastery. This nun's name was Ahitakristos, and she similarly had left her husband and home for the religious life. At first, Walata Petros wanted nothing to do with this new nun, saying, I don't want to live with a woman who has left her home, which seems a little like the pot calling the kettle black. Ahitakristos, for her part, wanted nothing to do with Walata Petros, thinking she was just a fancy-pants noblewoman. But once the two met, they became friends almost instantly, and they would be almost inseparable for the rest of their lives. I should make note that because they were such close friends, there has been some speculation that their friendship was somehow a romantic relationship. But there is no evidence for that. First of all, Walata Petros was an extreme ascetic, having denounced pretty much all worldly pleasure. And secondly, one of the stories in the life of Valeta Petros is her discovering and condemning several nuns who were being promiscuous with each other. So while this has been speculation, it seems at very least extremely unlikely. As a nun, Valeta Petros dedicated herself diligently to her work. She would work at her tasks to the point of exhaustion, but it was just the kind of life she was looking for. It is around this time that Alfonso Mendez arrived in Ethiopia. Remember, he is the hardcore Jesuit missionary. And remember, too, soon after his arrival, King Susenios converted to Catholicism. So now the monastery of Olata Petros was, for all intents and purposes, illegal. So they picked up and left the shores of Lake Tana and traveled from place to place until she reached the region of Tsat which was quite a bit further from the king and his influence. There she exhorted the people to resist this change, and again I'm quoting the filthy faith, and to stop even mentioning the king in their prayers. But as far away as this region was, news of this rebellious nun finally reached King Susenios, and he was enraged, and he planned to find her and execute her for her insubordination. He told her family they needed to bring her before him or he would start executing them on her behalf. When Walata Petros heard about this, she was saddened. But her and her nuns agreed that it was better for them to die for their faith rather than their relatives to die for them. When she was brought before the king, she approached with confidence. In fact, it even says she approached somewhat smugly. And when asked to answer the charges of disobeying the king, she would not reply. Instead, she stood with her head bowed and kind of a smirk. When they finished the charges against her, she simply said, I have not reviled the king. Rather, I will simply never renounce my faith. She was ready and willing for martyrdom right there. And 
Not surprisingly, the king was not amused by this, and he was about to condemn her to death, when out of the crowd stepped her old husband, Malchia Christos, to save her. He told the king that it was not out of disrespect that she was smiling so smugly, but because she had an evil spirit. This calmed the king enough to spare her life. His advisors also reminded him that while Lata Petros' family was still very powerful, and it wasn't wise to make them needlessly upset. So he commanded that she never teach again, and that she stay living with her family. Well, Walata Petros did neither. Soon she snuck out again and returned to her first monastery on the shores of Lake Tana. In one story, her and several other nuns were crossing the lake when suddenly a hippopotamus charged them. While everyone else in the boat was terrified, Walata Petros told them, Do not be afraid, O you of little faith. What makes you fear? Do you think that you will never die? Whether you throw yourselves overboard or whether that hippopotamus overturns you, you will die one in the same death. Take heart. The hippo then got so close that it put its feet on the boat and opened its mouth. But Walata Petros didn't back down. And according to the legend, she sat calmly and counted its teeth, which happened to be nine, if you were wondering. The hippo then turned around and swam away. She then traveled to another monastery, at a place called Waldeba, encouraging everyone there to stay true to the Ethiopian traditions and to resist the changes made by the king and the Jesuits. There are two interesting stories of our heroine during this time. At one monastery, she met an old woman who everyone agreed was horrible. Walata Petros decided she would make it her mission to be compassionate to this horrible woman. The old woman would mock and insult Walata Petros, but she never broke. She continued to be kind in the face of meanness and cruelty. After a year, the old woman died, never thanking her kind helper. Walata Petros buried the woman herself, and all those took note of her patience and kindness. A while later, she met an old righteous monk at that monastery. He was well respected, and knew that he would soon die. She wished that it was she that could die, and not him. The monk knew what she was thinking and reprimanded her. He said to her, Why do you desire death and oppose God's judgment? Truly, it is he who multiplies or diminishes a person's time on earth. It is he who dispenses death and life according to his will. He then prophesied that she would start seven monastic communities and commanded her to constantly be reading the Gospel of John for the rest of her life. Soon after he died, and she took both these things to heart. After having visions herself that she would leave this monastery, she traveled to another region, teaching and encouraging people there as well to resist the Europeans and hold to their own traditions. The king found out about this and, again, was royally upset. He sent a military commander to the place where Walata Petros was staying. Here she volunteered herself and said, Do with me as the king has ordered. I'm ready for it and prepared to die. I'm afraid of nothing. She arrived at the court. King Susenyos had three of the top Catholic theologians try to talk with her and convince her of the merits of Catholic doctrine. But Walata Petros was not listening. Instead, she would insult them and laugh at them. After a while, the theologians had enough of her abuse and gave up. Telling the king, Water cannot penetrate a heart of stone. Again, the king wanted to kill her. But his advisors warned him, that doing that would simply make her a martyr. 
and again her husband, Malchia Christos, came asking for her to be spared. She was then sent to exile to modern-day Sedan, and while she'd been traveling with her fellow nuns before this, including her best friend, Aheta Christos, this time she was exiled alone. She was handed over to a guard known to be cruel in a desolate area, but according to the story, he too had a vision of an angel protecting her, and learned to respect and honor her. Far away back in the court of Ethiopia, her husband was still finding ways to do his old wife favors. He convinced the king to let Aheta Christos join her friend. He told the king, I suggest we send her to that region so the lowland fever may kill her, and so that she will not perpetually cause you trouble and annoy us. So the king listened and let her go. After years of exile, Walata Petros's brother also appealed to the king that she be set free. Walata Petros's family still was powerful, and that helped her cause. But King Susenyos also caved because he was beginning to feel the pressure from many sides to stop the attempted project of making his country Roman Catholic. So Walata Petros was finally freed from her exile, and once she was back in Ethiopia, she began to start monastic communities, just like that old monk had prophesied. She was now famous in her home country as well for suffering so much and for facing the king twice and still never backing down. As she traveled around, people would gather around her to see this bold nun who was willing to face the king. Many of the former Orthodox monks and nuns were encouraged to return to their old vocations, and she encouraged them to start those monastic communities again. During this time, she started three monasteries, and became the administrator for all of them. And this was very unique. She was the functional head of these communities, even as a woman. This was not really allowed in Ethiopian practice, but as her biographer notes, if the men will not step up to the task, it fell upon her as a woman. In the year 1632, after years of trying to convert his nation to Catholicism, the king finally gave up. While he himself had been convinced of the merits of the theology, he had tried to change the nation's identity. So he reversed his orders and freed any prisoner who had resisted conversion and invited them back from exile. According to the biography of Oleta Petros, he even sent a personal letter to her, saying, Behold, I have re-established the faith of the Christians and abolished the faith of the Europeans. Rejoice and exult. May there be peace between you and me from now on. Now, that's not exactly what had happened. King Susenyos himself remained Catholic, and while he now fully tolerated Ethiopian Orthodoxy, he still supported Catholicism. But soon after, he abdicated and then died. He abdicated the throne to his son, named King Fasiladas. He then fully restored the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, and drove out Alfonso and all of his Catholic missionaries from the country. The attempt to bring Ethiopia into the fold of Roman Catholicism had failed. Wallata Petros herself would go on to form four more communities to reach that seven that had been prophesied by that monk so long before, and she would be attributed with many more miracles, and would still continue to be bold and sometimes rebellious, but she was much honored. And the new king, Fasiladas, was her patron, and helped construct a church for one of her most famous communities on an island in Lake Tana. 
Wallata Petros died in 1642, at the age of 50. Before she died, she appointed her old friend and companion, Ahesta Christos, to succeed her. Now, the story of Wallata Petros, I think, is a pretty interesting one. She isn't always a very, well, likable saint. She doesn't treat her husband all that well, and she did not correct her opponents with gentleness and respect, as we learn we should do from First Peter. But besides her boldness and courage, one thing I did greatly appreciate about her was her willingness to be corrected. Many times in her own biography, she is the one that must repent. She does make mistakes, but she was always willing to learn from them. And that kind of humility, matched with bravery and boldness, can certainly do great things. But also, I think a hero in this story is Walata Petros's long-suffering husband. Even after being spurned by her, he never gave up on her, and he was always doing what he could to protect her. And if it wasn't for his protection, she very easily could have been killed early on, and almost forgotten, like our friend Stephanos from episode 2.3. After the time of Wallata Petros, Catholicism declined greatly in Ethiopia. The overzealous missionary, Alfonso Mendez, was driven out of the country and ended up being captured by Muslims. It was over a year before he was ransomed and set free. While he would try many times, he would never end up returning to Ethiopia. And I think this story is also a good lesson for missionary work in general. As a friend of mine, Joshua Barron, a missionary himself, says, Evangelization is not proselytization. That is, the good news does not mean absolute uniformity. Had the Catholic mission actually followed the advice of Pius and Ignatius of Loyola, there may have been unity between the two churches. But because of the demand that the Ethiopians give up their culture and their heritage for Roman Catholic ones, well, then things fell apart. Next time, we will see some more successful bridges built between Europe and Ethiopia. While the Catholic Church in Ethiopia is relatively small today, the Lutheran Church and Evangelical Churches in Ethiopia are booming. Next time, we'll learn about Lutheran missionaries to Ethiopia, and a young Ethiopian who would help form the Makaniyesus Church, a Lutheran church body that is bigger than any Lutheran church body in America today. Well, that's all for today, so thank you again for joining me. One other quick announcement. That artwork that we raised money for through the t-shirt fundraiser will start being made in June. The artist was very busy with several other projects. I'll give you more updates as we get closer. Oh, and one other announcement. If you've been listening to A Moment of Bach with my two good friends Alex and Christian, you'll have noticed I'm a guest on the most recent episode. So if you haven't yet, this is a great time to check it out. A Moment of Bach with Alex and Christian Giebert. Now please don't forget to like and subscribe to the podcast. Make sure you rate and review it, it always helps, and thanks to those of you who have. Also, I appreciate all comments and questions. So please visit the website faithfulforebears.com and follow the podcast on Facebook. And, as always, and most importantly, if you like it, tell a friend. I'm Eric Clausen, and thanks for listening.